back when I was in grade eight, I met Joe, and he was a really good hockey player. He was actually one of the two best players on PEI at the time. And the other one was Rick Vive. And how many of you know his name at this service? It might be a little better. Show of hands. Yeah, you might have beat the first service. I think four people knew who he was. He was a professional hockey player with the Toronto Maple Leafs back in the 1980s and 90s. And he was from Prince Edward Island. But Rick Vive went on to great things in hockey, and Joe didn't. And that seemed to eat at him. And he started drinking, and then he started, he was everywhere he went, he seemed to be in a fight. And then drugs became a part of the whole deal. And eventually, he was out of control. And then I lost contact with him until we were partway through university and someone had actually brought him to Christ. And there was a, an event on PEI, it was a crusade put on by one of Billy Graham's associates, Leighton Ford, and this guy actually got up and shared his testimony at this event. That it, there were probably 3,000 people there in the Charlottetown Forum. So he made a dramatic turn to Christ and was a positive testimony to the community. So it's amazing what can happen when a person is given the opportunity. So how do you react when people are troubled or out of control? Maybe it's a family member who occasionally loses their temper or is abusive, or maybe a friend who's addicted to alcohol or drugs, or maybe it's a student with an eating disorder, or a coworker with a gambling problem, or maybe that someone is you, and there's an area in your life that is just beyond your control, and you just can't seem to get a handle on it. And it's frustrating you. It's depressing you. The great news is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is filled with the news that God's grace is greater than any of our sins. And Jesus Christ doesn't just want to forgive our sins, but he wants us to overcome sin and to live in victory. So let's look at today's biblical account. And that truth is illustrated most dramatically and miraculously in the life of a demon-possessed man. And we read the story in Luke chapter 8. This man was completely out of control. He tortured himself and tormented the community. But Jesus responded to this man with healing grace, and this man became a positive testimony to the community about the eternal truth of Jesus Christ. So the biblical account begins in Luke 8, verse 26. Jesus and his followers sailed across the lake from Galilee to the area of the Gerasene people. When Jesus got out on the land, a man from the town who had demons inside him came to Jesus and for a long time he had worn no clothes and had lived in the burial caves not in a house now demon possession is a complex subject but the Bible teaches that there is a war going on a spiritual war that we can't see physically and he tells us in scripture that we really wrestle against the spiritual not against flesh and blood. So there are angels 
created spirit beings that we seldom see in our world. And they are messengers of God. And they are fighting on our behalf. And then there are fallen angels, demons that we don't see that are ambassadors of Satan. And there's a constant conflict going on between the two sides. And it's raging for the souls of men and women. It's God's will that people become so committed to him that they can say with the Apostle Paul, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So that's what our goal is. But Satan's goal is to get us involved in sin so that demons possess us and control us. Now Satan seems to get a hold of some people, and it's not always a violent reaction like we see with this man in Luke 8. Sometimes he gets a hold of people and leads them into sinister behavior. Because we read in the Bible that Satan came into actually Judas and led him to betray Christ. And then sometimes it's a supernatural insight. Like in Acts chapter 16 where Paul encountered a young woman who was possessed with a demon. And the, she actually was making a fortune for her masters because of her ability to predict the future. Movies like The Exorcist, The Omen, or Poltergeist, and others like that deal with demon possession. And I wonder if people like Adolf Hitler or Charles Manson, and I'm beginning to wonder about Vladimir Putin, I'm wondering if they have crossed that line as well. But you read the Bible, and demon possession doesn't seem to be very prominent in other times in biblical eras as it was in Jesus' day. And it's not as prominent in our age as well. I've been in ministry for almost 40 years, and I can't say that I've seen a real case of demon possession and then an exorcism. And why is that? There's some possible explanations. One is, I'm not as much a threat as Jesus was, so Satan's not worried. He doesn't have to bring out the big guns with me. I don't think that's what it is. Some believe that Satan was mounting a counteroffensive when Jesus began his ministry. So he was pulling out all stops. He was doing everything he could to frustrate the efforts of Jesus. But... Maybe so, not really sure. Another explanation why we don't see as much demonic influence in Canada is because we're a so-called Christian nation. And the church has stifled Satan's influence. But missionaries in pagan countries report clear cases of demon possession. But they're rare in Christian Canada. But I don't think so. When I start talking about Canada as a a Christian country, we're starting to lose that. But I like this explanation, and that is the fact that prior to the arrival of Jesus and his subsequent death, burial, and resurrection, Satan had power to actually enter into people without their permission. But after Jesus defeated death, Satan has been hampered. He's, his power has been clipped, and he can't come in and possess someone unless they invite him. So we don't know a lot about demon possession, but I want you to notice what the demons did to this man. First of all, he was physically deprived. The Bible says that he didn't wear clothes for a long time. And 
Then this man ran naked, and he lived in the burial tombs. Now, these burial tombs weren't like the cemeteries that we have today. They would actually cut these caves into the side of a hill. And then a tomb was a fairly big area. So he was actually going into those at night, and he was sleeping there with a corpse. There would be rotting flesh in there as well. But that's where he was sleeping. Now, we have a lot of homeless people in our city, but their situation still isn't as bad as what is going on with this man. And he was spiritually defiant. Look at verse 28. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him, and he said with a loud voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. And he had said, he said this, because Jesus was commanding the evil spirit to come out of the man. I like the way the message paraphrases this. It said, what business do you have messing with me, Jesus? And that's exactly what Jesus was about to do. He was going to mess with these demons. So a person controlled by the devil isn't interested in spiritual matters. In fact, they get angry and they get defiant when Jesus is mentioned. They see Jesus as a threat. They see Christians as oppressive. They see the church as an enemy. So anything but that. And this man was despised socially. We'll pick up in the rest of that 29th verse. Many times it had taken hold of him. Though he had been kept under guard and chained hand and foot, he had broken his chains and had been forced by the demon out into a lonely place. So the guy is a loner. The residents of the area are terrified of him. They've tried to chain him. They put chains on his feet and chains on his hands and arms, but... He is just so strong that he keeps breaking them. They can't subdue him. And he was emotionally disturbed. The scriptures say night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and he would cut himself with stones. So he was personally miserable. He didn't sleep much. He mutilated his body. This man was tortured by many demons. And the local residents, they're terrified of this man. No one would go there. Children were warned by their parents, now don't go play anywhere near Gadara. Remembering back to our childhoods, there were always those neighbors that our parents warned us to stay away from. Just a little eccentric maybe, or they might be a little concerned if you walked onto their property. But there was this one guy in the neighboring community to us, and he was bad. People said he had been kicked in the head by a horse and wasn't the same since. And, and I kind of believe that. But if you even walked on his property, he would be irate. Now today, if people were walking their dogs and they stopped on his property with their dog and their dog did their bathroom things, he might have actually hurt somebody. But that's what we see going on with this man from Gadara. And he is the most unattractive, unloved, undesirable individual in that region. And Jesus and his disciples, they landed in the area on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And the disciples, I'm sure they're tiptoeing and, and they're hiding behind Jesus because even though it's night, they're afraid that 
this guy is going to come and hurt them. And they think by hiding behind Jesus, the man who just calmed the storm and the sea, he'll protect us from this crazy man. And that reminds me of a time when I let my wife down. Man, have you ever done that, let your wife down? So a couple in the church lived over on the Ross Road, and they had a 10-acre property. So they had passed through the woods and a pond and everything, and there was an event taking place, but my wife Pat and I went for a walk on one of these paths. And then we heard this man yelling, No, no, Joe, Bob, come here, come here. And then all of a sudden this Rottweiler appears. It was white and it was covered with mud. And I had white shorts on. And I, I, I guess I kind of hid in behind my wife so the dog wouldn't jump on me. And she said, Did you actually hide behind me? <laughs> and she figured it was out of fear that the dog was going to bite me. So I'm sure that Jesus felt the same way. Are you guys hiding behind me? Stand up. Be a man here. And then, uh, I've lost my place. (laughs) So the guy does appear. All of a sudden, he just charges out of the darkness and screaming at the top of his lungs, like, what do you want with me, son of the most high God? And you all know what it's like to be surprised by someone. It's just, it it frightens you. And then Jesus' response in verse 30, I love. He said, what is your name? And he answered, and with a pitiful reply, legion, because many demons were in him. Now a legion was a Roman army of 6,000 soldiers. So that's how many demons he was saying were inside of him. And Jesus didn't run away from him. Jesus didn't condemn him, but he was full of grace and compassion. He created this man. He knew this man. He loved this man, and he wasn't going to let him down at this point. Now, the demons, they begged Jesus not to send them into eternal darkness. And in your translation, it might say abyss. And that word actually isn't referring to hell. It it used three to four times in the Bible, and its meaning is the bottomless pit or the deep. And it must have been some incredibly undesirable place where demons were placed when restrained by God because these demons were saying, don't throw us there, don't place us there. So in 32, a large herd of pigs was feeding on a hill, and the demons begged Jesus to allow them to go into the pigs So Jesus allowed them to do this, and when the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd ran down the hill into the lake and was drowned. Now there's a lot about this I don't understand. Why would the demons want to be sent into the pigs? Did they think they would be safe there? Or were they so terrified of being disembodied spirits that they would rather be in animals? And why did the pigs run down that hill into the water? Did the demons cause them to do that? Or did Jesus cause them to do that? So this could be a demonstration of what he had just done, how many demons had just come out of that man. And and the biggest question is why the people of the nearby town were so upset about it. Look at verse 34 and following. When the herdsmen saw what had happened... They ran away 
and told about this in the town and the countryside. And people went to see what had happened. And when they came to Jesus, they found the man sitting at Jesus' feet, clothed and in his right mind, because the demons were gone. But the people were frightened. Now, you think you would read, and the people were elated. Like this man was no longer a threat to them. The danger had been eliminated, but they were frightened. Like what were they afraid of? Were they afraid of change? I know sometimes people, they like what they're doing, even though it's not good, and they're afraid to change because at least they know what to expect. Or were they afraid that the miracle was temporary? At any moment, this man who was supposedly cured uh, might turn back into this raving madman again. They didn't know what would happen. But I should have had this one first, growing up on a farm on PEI. They are upset about losing money. It was the economy. There were probably thousands of pigs in that herd, and these people were losing their livelihood. Who cares about the man and that he was cured? Money meant more than mercy. So they said to Jesus, we're not happy with you, man, and we don't want you around here any longer. And that's basically what they say in verse 36. The people who saw this happen told the others how Jesus had made the man well, and all the people of the Gerasene country asked Jesus to leave because they were all afraid. So Jesus got into the boat and went back to Galilee. We don't want you here, Jesus. You're making us uncomfortable. We, please leave. And Jesus was full of grace and truth. He didn't force himself upon them. And as the scripture tells us, they granted the request. They got into the boat and left. And then verse 89, uh, 38. The man whom Jesus had healed begged to go with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, go back home and tell people how much God has done for you. So the man went all over town telling how much Jesus had done for him. And one of the traditional hymns of the faith says, grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. And that's what this man had just experienced. Now there are four applications from this that I want you to take home. The first one is that Satan's goal is to enslave you. So don't give him a foothold. Because there's a lot about demon possession that we don't understand. But I know this. Satan is a cunning liar. And he is going to do everything that he can to entice you. He's going to do it with love and with freedom. Or maybe it's fun. But in the end, he'll enslave you. And Jesus said that Satan is out to steal and destroy so there are no honorable actions that are going to come from him. In response to giving into his actions, people will say things like, well, I didn't want to do it, but there's something that just took over my heart, and it was stronger than my willpower to say no, and I couldn't stop. And that's true of so much sin, whether it's alcoholism or drugs or gambling or pornography, the internet, shoplifting, gossiping, the lust for power, eating disorder, hatred of people. An old pastor said, sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. And that is so true. 
we might enter into it at first, dabbling, and it just seems so small and not much harm. And then before we know it, we're caught and we can't get out of it. So Satan wants to do with you what he did with this demon-possessed man. He wants you lonely, miserable, and enslaved to all kinds of passions. Peter wrote about this in 1 Peter 5. He said, stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. So Satan's goal is to enslave you, so you need to avoid him. The second lesson we can draw from this story is that Jesus' grace can completely liberate you. So seek after him. You can't resist the devil and he'll flee because he'll come back and try to catch you in a weaker moment. That's why the Bible says, submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. So if you commit yourself totally to God unconditionally, then resist the devil, he is going to leave. He can't stay around you. Maybe you have an addiction right now that's so entrenched that you wonder if there's any hope for release. But I'm here to tell you that Jesus Christ and his grace can help you overcome. You may have wounds and scars from the past, and you're thinking that nobody can ever accept me. Nobody can ever love me again. But I want you to know that Jesus Christ is your friend, and he wants to transform you. You may have so much bitterness in you that you lash out at Christians. Maybe you even feel uncomfortable being here this morning. Someone has brought you here. Or you're watching and you're not that comfortable. Well, I want you to know that Jesus is full of grace and truth. And he refuses to be intimidated by your defiance. And he's asking right now, what's your name? How can I help you? Vincent Damon Fernier, you won't know that name at all because that was the birth name of Alice Cooper, who back in the 1970s was the most extreme rock singer in the world. And he wore outrageous clothing. You know, some of you say, who's he? Go home and check him out, Google, when you get home. And, but he wore the most outrageous clothing and makeup. And on stage, he would drink from a skull. He would perform mock hangings and electrocutions. He performed with snakes hanging around his neck. He was called the master of shock rock. And he performed songs like Love It to Death, Killer, uh, Welcome to My Nightmare, Trash. And even though I was a teenager at the time when you're supposed to be rebelling and accepting of everything but your parents, I thought the guy was crazy. I, I thought maybe this is demon possession. It has to be to, to explain his bizarre behavior. But I later discovered that he was a pastor's son. And then, okay, that gave me a little more understanding. <laughs> the, the, well, wait now. Not that pastor's kids <laughs> act that way. But he, the fact that he was running as far away from God, as far away from the church, and as far away from his Christian family as he could get. He was in rebellion. And I really feel for his father. Just imagine to be watching what your son was doing and to be so popular for it. But his wife 
ended up becoming a Christian. And then she just kept working on him and working on him. And he came to church with her and he became a Christian as well. And he ended up as a Sunday school teacher. For those of us who watched him at some point, Alice Cooper, a Sunday school teacher in a Baptist church in Georgia. And he spoke to the pastor and he said, I really think I should change my name back to what my birth name was. And the pastor said, no, keep Alice Cooper because we want people to see the display of God's amazing grace, to know the change that took place in you. The Bible says where sin increased, grace increased all the more. And the love of God is greater than anything that we think, that we say, or that we write. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul said, and God can give you more blessings than you need, then you will always have plenty of everything, enough to give, every, to, give to every good work. The third application is that some people will resent your transformation, and you need to be tolerant of them. You have to give them a break. Like these people in Gadara who didn't rejoice over the man's deliverance at all, they resented it. And when your life is transformed by God's grace, not everybody is going to be happy about it. Your parents will say, well, wasn't the religion that we gave you when you were a kid good enough? Or your spouse might say, are you going to drag me to church all the time? And are you going to give away all our money? But maybe your spouse's comfort zone is threatened. Or your friends may say, I like the old you better. You were more fun to be with. Do you think you're better than we are? Their conscience may have been pricked, so they lash out at you. But don't lash out at them. Don't be intimidated by them. Don't nag them or whine or play the martyr. Just show them Jesus Christ and show that you are a caring son or daughter, that you are a loving spouse, that you are a joyful friend and a better worker. Simon Peter wrote this, and I, I paraphrased it. It's in chapter 3. Wives, if your husbands don't believe the word, win them over without words by the behavior of their wives. When they see the reverence and purity of your lives, they'll be influenced. So let people be changed. Let them see the grace of Jesus Christ through your life. And the last lesson is familiar territory may be your most fertile field. You witness to God's grace there. The man said to Jesus, I want to follow you full time. Well, Jesus had reached out to 12 men, and they followed him full time, his 12 disciples. So it was pretty noble of this man to say, I want to follow you full time, Jesus. I want to go with you everywhere. I want to be part of your program. You can introduce me at some point and talk about the transformation that has taken place in my life. Or I can stand up and I can give my testimony. But Jesus replied, no, I just want you to go back to your hometown and give witness to what the Lord has done in your hometown. See, it wouldn't work nearly as well for him to travel around Greece or, or Turkey because people wouldn't know his story. It wouldn't be as dramatic. Sometimes we think that if we're totally dedicated to the Lord, that means that we will be missionaries in some remote area of the world or that we will go into full-time ministry. But 
not every Christian becomes a missionary. Not every Christian goes into full-time ministry. We still need people that go back to their hometown and give testimony to his grace. So maybe a businessman who changes his tactics is more powerful as a witness than a TV evangelist that people don't even know. Maybe a husband who starts being thoughtful with his wife has more influence. Maybe a student who is diligent in study or a drunk who becomes sober or a greedy man who becomes generous or a sour and negative person who becomes joyful. Maybe they have more powerful testimonies to the grace of God and his transformation of their lives. Remember the story of the woman at the well? And she had been married five times, and she was now living with a man that wasn't her husband, and Jesus transformed her. And then she went back to her hometown of Samaria, and she said, come see the man who told me everything about me and still accepts me. And almost the entire town of, was actually coming to Christ because of her powerful testimony. So testimonies are powerful. And I love every time I hear someone share the great transformation that has taken place in their life. And we got away from that during COVID, and we're hoping to get back to that again, just occasionally having someone share of that transformation in their lives, because it will be a positive influence on those who are listening. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter wrote, Dear friends, you are like foreigners and strangers in this world, and I beg you to avoid the evil things your bodies want to do that fight against your soul. Now notice that he's saying here that doesn't come easily. There's a battle for your soul, but you control the evil desires that are warring there. And the next verse says, people who do not believe are living all around you and might say that you are doing wrong. Live such good lives that they will see the good things you do and will give glory to God on the day when Christ comes again. So glorify God for his grace that he is changing you and that he is transforming you. John Newton was a sailor in the early 1700s and sailors were noticed for being profane people and he was one of the worst. He was actually known as the great blasphemer and he was profane, he was coarse, he led many other sailors into disbelief. And in fact, he sank so low that he ended up becoming a slave trader. One time he was even thrown overboard and they harpooned him to save him and bring him back on board the ship. So that's how far he had sunk in his life. But one time he was on a ship called the Greyhound and it was in the midst of a terrible storm and he just called out to the Lord for grace and God granted that grace and at the age of 39 the Lord turned John Newton's life around and for the next 43 years he preached the gospel of Christ in London England and he began to write hymns for his church and one of the hymns he composed was entitled Faith's Review and Expectation and the title was later changed to Amazing Grace so you can just imagine back in the days when we had hymnals, I'd say turn to number 444, face review and expectation, but amazing grace, much better.
Only God's grace could transform a rude, profane, slave-trading sailor into a child of God. Only God's grace could transform a demon-possessed man who called himself Legion into a positive man in his right mind and testifying to the grace of Christ in his life. Only the grace of Christ can change you. Maybe you've never accepted him as Lord and Savior. Maybe you've never allowed that grace to enter into your life and offer you the forgiveness of sins. We offer that opportunity to you to believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior, to surrender to him, to repent of the sin in your life, to confess that belief before others and be baptized into him. You can speak to any of our leaders about that. We have many others in our church that can guide you as well into how you can enter into relationship with Jesus.